Hiya, my name is Anna Quigley and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast by Citywide Drugs Crisis Campaign, Untold Stories. Citywide is a network of community organisations across the country, really, that are responding to the impact of drugs in our communities for the last 25 years now. This is a really important time for us in looking at the drugs issue. First of all, because we're finally recognising that the way we approach the drugs issue in Ireland is not working. And we have the Citizens' Assembly set up now by the government to look at how we should change the way we're responding. And obviously we've got the 99 members of the Assembly who are working away, doing really good work in there. But for us, it's really, really important that we're all part of this discussion, that we're all part of this conversation, because this issue, the drugs issue, it affects us all. So on this podcast, you're going to hear from people They're all people who are active in their communities as a result of their own direct experience around drugs. And that could be that they use drugs themselves, it could be a family member used drugs, or it could be just because they've seen the impact overall that drugs have in their community. And they're all people who want to bring about change as a result of their own experience. So we think these are really important stories. We'd like to really thank the people who are telling us these stories. And the stories that you hear on this podcast, they will be anonymous And that's because the current policy that we have, unfortunately, shame, blame, stigma and criminalisation are all part of that policy. So you'll understand that this can be difficult for people to be identified. So tell me a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. I'm a youth worker and I have been for the last 15 years. I've worked in a number of youth projects across Dublin, both national and local. I love working with young people. It's my vocation. I wake up every day and look forward to going into work. It's rewarding, challenging, but you have to manage a lot of disappointment. And it'll take lumps out of you <laughs> year on year. But I keep them going back because I love what I do. I love connecting with young people. I love their personalities. I love watching them grow and develop into the, the, the and, and realising their full potential. I see myself in them, you know, it's almost like I'm reliving my own youth with them. So I just connect with it. I connect with them. Despite all the challenges that come or come my way, you could easily become so cynical about it. But youth work fills me full of hope. And I just think that hope trumps that cynicism. And we do live in a very challenging and cynical world right now at the moment. And young people need adults now more than ever and I just feel very privileged to be that one adult that gets to do that work and go on that journey with young people and try to change stuff I can affect change in their lives but in the society that makes it difficult for them to grow up in some people don't call it work when it is uh, a job but I feel blessed that I found my calling and I think I'm supposed to be doing what I'm doing I really love it eternally a youth worker one thing that really interests me is I think it's so important that the young person is a partner in that work, that their their opinion and their their direction for themselves is central to the work you do with them. I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what it is and that's what I see it is. is it's an equal partnership that you're entering into where, yes, you're a youth worker, which are professional. You build a relationship with the young people. Everything hinges on the relationship and without the relationship you can't have trust and often when they present to you they're not at where you need them to be because you're dealing with a lot of surface level stuff you know a lot of issues and if they can trust you that you're here listening 
and then trying to help them and challenging them on those issues. It becomes that kind of equal partnership and that's invaluable. And I think in a society now, today, that there's a big gap between adults and young people and I just really feel it's a great privilege to be in that position to bridge those kind of gaps and being able to listen to young people but then using my platform or position as a youth worker to listen what I'm hearing but then to relay that where it needs to go because a lot of the issues that young people are presenting with are not through their own volition they're due to issues of inequality and their, their, their own realities which can be quite chaotic and stressful a lot of the time so that's what you'll be dealing with on the day to day before the work can actually happen but when to establish that relationship and you engage them and like they're coming in, then the magic happens. But there's a lot you have to do to get to that place. And how much of that work or how much of what's happening for young people revolves around drugs and particularly drug-related harm? So much um, to the point that it's ever-present. It's one of the most prevailing issues that we have in the communities or in the young person's life. It's what they're exposed to. It's so normalised. Drugs and the illegal drug trade in the communities where I work is one of the biggest obstacles a young man or young woman has to overcome. And you're catching a young person at 10, only to see them on a street corner at 16. And all that effort and resources and that you put into it, it's kind of demoralising. It's not 16 anymore, it's 14 and it's 12. And not just young people using drugs, but distributing, supplying and being used as mules. Um, it's getting younger. And then the violence that would actually come with it as well, because it's not, I suppose, gang gangland or gangsters up higher up the chain that carry out these um, beatings or executions. It's it's easy to get a child to do your bidding for you. That's that's a huge thing that we're dealing with. I suppose for me, having an analysis of that problem and naming it for what it is, it's like something really needs to be done about this because. It's been going on for so long and it's not going to change. It's just getting worse. So you talked there about the analysis and that's another piece of the work you do. I mean, you're an activist. So talk to me a little bit about that as well. My activism is obviously both professional, but it's also personal as well, because as I said, I can see myself in all of those issues that the young people are presenting with because the exact same thing happened to me growing up. It's like when heroin swept through working class communities in the early 90s it did leave a trail of wreckage and destruction because I suppose of the time in the late 80s and early 90s there was the rave culture and people went out on weekends it was also a time of mass unemployment as well fortunately at the time both of my own parents worked but as young parents who went out on the weekend they were among the many hundreds or thousands that were trying this new drug called heroin. And if you put it into context what was going on in communities back then, is there was a lot of hardship, there was a lot of unemployment, there was a lot of struggle. People from those communities who tried this drug, and the drug use at the time was ecstasy and stuff like that, but people then started to use heroin to come down at parties and whatnot. And, like, I never asked my parents this because I can't... I have, I, do you think it was that that's what they did? They tried something, but didn't it take all the pain that they experienced during a time like that away? And it did that for so many people. You know, that as I was told before, the experience of using heroin is like a warm blanket. 
So it kind of makes sense why people would use that, but I don't think they knew what they were getting into. And overnight, just life was just turned on its head. I see my own parents dis like descend into very chaotic addiction. And then, you know, the knock-on effects of that sets off a chain of events in young children's lives, and it did for me and my sisters, because uh, having responsible parents becoming irresponsible and not knowing what was happening. And then to see, as I said, the chain of events that happens, that they're criminalised, uh, strangers in your house, open drug use in your house, overdose in your house, the neglect, the hunger, just the decay that actually comes with that, the chase, running around, going to clinics, is just interventions with social workers. And it went on for years. It's from the age of eight. Got to the point where my parents just couldn't look after us anymore. I mean, my mum, really, because my dad was always in and out of prison. But uh, they weren't together either anymore. And it was just really hard to see my ma trying to manage us all. And then she, she never read, really made the right choices in terms of the type of partner she would choose. And my mum always tried to get better, but I think at the time, instead of compassion, my mum was met with hostility. She vilified by the community. Um, you know, everyone turned their back on her, and therefore she turned, turned on herself. So the conditions for her to get better weren't there. Do you know what I mean? So, and descended further into her addiction to the point where the state did intervene. Well, firstly, we were evicted from our home and made homeless, and my sisters were taken into care. I managed to slip through the state's fingers, and I suppose friends and their families took PE and took me in. But I was living for seven years in very precarious, uh, no fixed abode homelessness. I wasn't destitute on the streets or anything like that, but never got a night, good night's sleep. So yeah, and uh, you know, got me, had myself on housing lists at the time. And you know, after seven years, I eventually got me flat. And um, then my sisters, I took them to live with me. Now they're all, you know, getting on with their own lives to have their own homes, and I'm still at home in the flat. And they say, they still call my flat their home, you know, because it's our base, but got my sisters, we got our lives back together. But yeah, then my ma passed away. She was in homelessness, and I got the odd call I would get. Your ma's in hospital, and I'd roll my eyes, or here we go again, but I wasn't prepared for it. Doctor had called from the hospital and says, uh, Oh, okay, it's you up there, and he said, no, you need to come up. And I went up, and I'd, I'd realised that was the last time I was going to be see her. She wasn't, he said she might have some consciousness, but I just had to suck her up and say, right, it's hard to say goodbye, but I had to ring the, the girls and tell them as well and tell the family. So that was really difficult. I knew that my mum's pain and suffering was over then, do you know what I mean? But yeah, we were left without our mother. I'm a big long-winded way of telling you to why I became an activist, but I think all that stuff is important. It's all that kind of accord that I already had my first son, and I was still living in that kind of precarious situation, but I was determined to firstly get myself a home. While I was living in support of the transitional housing, where to live there, you'd have to be at risk of homes, homeless, or just your home was untenable. You had to commit to a personal development plan, basically look for education or employment or, or work, you kind of went in there under those, um, under that context that that's what you would do. And um, my key worker was good um, and she pulled me and she had said to me, you can't keep on doing this. It was 2008, so 
austerity <laughs> was starting to happen and the construction trade was gone so I wasn't getting as many jobs and I was collecting the dough and she was saying would you consider going back to education and I was like ah, I don't think that's for me but she kept at me um, for a play tour so she uh, handed me a brochure one day and that was Deliberties College and I said you out in community work and I said oh I know that and she says why did you never tell me that and she says you know you could do this as a career and I kind of remembered then the two youth workers that also said that to me, you know, you should think about this, but I'd put education up on such a pedestal because I'd had such a negative experience of uh, education, no leaving school before, with no formal qualifications, like no junior cert or no leaving cert. So to go back was just so intimidating. But she says, right, I'm going to make a, an application. So she did, and I got the interview. And three weeks into that course, I just knew this is where I'm supposed to be. Um, started working, doing street work, and then they completed the liberties, then went on to Minute and spent three years out there. And uh, in that time, I started working in a national organisation. And uh, I had an amazing experience working there, doing issue-based youth work. And they took a human rights-based approach to the work to advocate for the rights and inclusion of young people. And that really blew my mind because the philosophy of work was about change and young people being part of that change so that kind of sparked me imagination in terms of actually this type of work can be a vehicle for change why did i become an activist and while i held that position i was the drugs worker there and uh, i was never comfortable i mean now my interactions with young people and listening to their experiences of drugs i was always comfortable but it just became very apparent to me and very clear that there was an elephant in the room that the approach to drugs in Ireland was completely and utterly ineffectual and leaden with bad attitude and just the wrong kind of lens. And, and I was able to see that because of what happened to me in my own personal life. And then I was saying, hang on, there's huge issues here. Didn't know all this. This community is a higher proportion. Like drug levels are higher. The issues that come with it were higher. And I began to see between the lines. I have to look at this a little bit differently because back then I suppose I had that inner prohibitionist in me in myself because I'd seen the damage drugs had done to my mum and my dad. But at the same time, I just kept on seeing it happening. Drugs, people becoming dependent on them. My, my situation isn't just an isolated case. This is happening to a lot of people and the response is not good enough. Why are we like looking to punish every single person who uses drugs? So... This is 2014 at the time, like, and I worked with a group of young adults and we were having a discussion about their experiences of interacting with the law and drugs and whatnot. You know, they began to talk about decriminalisation and the, the notion of decriminalisation was only kind of around, coincided with that time, me understanding of it, what it actually was. And just talking with those young people just made me more sense. It's like, actually, this is in order to protect the health and welfare of people like decriminalization essentially means a health issue so that's what we need to be advocating for and it actually coincided that the justice committee of the time had put out a call to the public for submissions to alter the present approach to certain drugs but anyway said it to the young people do you want to write a report or says i'll go to the board with this and see will they support us and the kind of organization that they are campaigning and advocacy supported that they didn't shoot it down he says right give us a position paper we wrote it and that was the one we sent in so i think that was the really start of my activism around campaigning for change around drugs 
a report came from that that gave a bunch of recommendations that were in favour. Here we are 10 years later still advocating for the same. Over the last 10 years, yes, I've been an advocate for decriminalisation, safe injecting rooms, with a welfare of festivals, you know, drug checking, anything that supports a health-led approach to drugs or its intention to reduce harm. I became very proactive in and, you know, ran some harm reduction campaigns on Pride and all with the message to reduce harms around sex and drugs. And young people respond very well to that because not often told they're just, you know, they're condescended to or, you know, drugs are bad and okay. And, you know, fair enough, some young people will take that message, but the majority who use drugs obviously didn't. That approach belongs in the bin to me, but the approach I took, young people responded well because they were involved in the process. It's all peer-led, it's peer-to-peer kind of stuff. So I still carry out that in terms of my practice on a day-to-day, but my activism definitely is motivated by my own experience growing up, but that I've chosen to go and help young people who are in similar situations to me. The thing that keeps me going with it all is just the same things are happening to young people and their families that happened to me, like, 40 years ago. I was just going to ask, so your own experience that you've just shared there for a lot of people will be so traumatic, but yet you've ended up stepping right into the space where you have to face that in other young people day after day. What's the motivation? Like what drives you to keep going? Justice. I mean, I can't get back what I lost. And when I talk about loss, yeah, my mum is dead and my relationship with my dad is like has always been like poor I suppose because loving me still out there he's living in hostels yeah his life's very difficult but because of his relationship with drugs the ability to have a proper father its own relationship has always been got in the way look I can't get that back but I can stop future generations from experiencing the same things like so I could let all my trauma and pain and suffering of my life eat me up be angry and depressed but I chose to channel it through my work so you know, that fire in my belly is there because of, uh, primarily because of that, about justice and, you know, doing them justice because, yes, they, it's not all down to bad choices. It was the conditions and their circumstances at the time that I suppose my parents needed a different type of intervention than the one that they actually got. How important is it for people to know that, that it's not bad choices, that these are structural problems? Well, we have to understand why people use drugs in the first place. And if you want to know that, you need to go back thousands of years. And I believe that if you want to know why it became so harmful, you just go back to the beginning of prohibition. Young people use drugs for whatever reasons to feel more and more confident to alleviate pain. And if they're doing that, that's fine. But we need to ask why they're experiencing those things or why they can't be present in their lives. And that trying to just stop people without addressing those issues, creates problems. And that's what we've been doing, and that's what we're still doing. In terms of our current drugs policy, I think a lot of people don't realise that even though all communities use drugs, it's communities like ours that are deemed disadvantaged, they're deprived, they're impacted the most, they're living in poverty. We're experiencing these harms at a much higher rate. What is it about our communities? What are you seeing? What are young people experiencing? What are families experiencing? The communities and the families and children are coping with the everyday stress and chaos that poverty actually brings. But when you throw prohibition into the mix, it just 
compounds existing issues and adds new problems. If you're already living in a community where resources and money and general and opportunities are less, people will go to other measures to, to make money. So then the underground economy then is a, a perfect playground for people who want to sell drugs because there's such a demand for them that it's easy to, to, to make money. But through that, that underground economy sorts itself out through violence and intimidation. So then you have a wall of silence, you know, where no one will say anything. And then these gangs or whatever then have more control over the community than the actual guards do. And the community doesn't trust the guards and guards don't trust the community. And then there's just a general sense of hopelessness that nothing's ever going to change around here. And parents worried that their young men or their children are going to be next, do you know, that kind of way. And it's just cyclical it just keeps on happening what i see is just it's getting worse because it's becoming more violent more chaotic less policing and when the guards are successful in removing a supplier from a community two hours later another one steps in only with the promise of more violence or i'm more violent as i mentioned earlier young people are getting exploited into that younger and younger you know youth workers at the moment are scratching their heads as to you know, right now it's never been as more challenging to engage these young people because they just have that attitude, like they do not care. It's almost like a nihilism or something like that. So that can be scary and very difficult. But they're the prevailing issues that are going on and this the fear and stress and intimidation that that actually brings, it's just contained then in those areas. In those communities as well, you only have to look at the prison rates and the amount of people in prison and where they come from they're from those areas. It speaks to me that they're being criminalised for a, for a far more widespread actual problem. So working class communities or people living in poverty are interacting with the law more than, say, our middle class drug user who is insulated from those problems because they're not the target of the laws. That's what's filling up our prisons. And as a youth worker, we know the harms drugs are doing to young people. And when I emphasise drugs, I'm saying banned drugs because there's no way of telling the content purity or consequences of what they're taking, but the risk is always there. And risk taking's fun for people, but when they're taking drugs, you don't often think about that, but there are risks attached to it. It's about the harm drugs are causing. We're acutely aware of that and have been from the get-go. But I think the harms, a conviction for personal possession far outweighs the harm that an apparent drug is having on a young person's life, you can outgrow drug use. And most people actually do. In fact, 90% of people who use drugs never go on to develop dependence, 10% will. But the criminal conviction seriously damages your life opportunities and condemns you to a lifetime of social exclusion. And that's what I see happening to young men and young women. Young men primarily in the communities I work is if they're criminalised for having possession on them, and likely will at some point, they're pushed further into addiction and criminality than they've ever been. Like It's like it's game over, and I think that's way too harsh a lesson. Young people have potential, and we need, we need to realise that potential by not criminalising them, working with them where they're at, finding out why they're using drugs and looking for a different alternative. Handcuffs isn't. These kids need hugs, not handcuffs. Do you know what I mean? And um, Why? I know that's such a broad question, right? But we have the evidence. We have the experience of youth workers like you and others. We know that it's not working. And obviously, hopefully the Citizens' Assembly is going to look at that. But why, when we have all this evidence, is the same thing happening now that happened to your family decades ago? 
just why is it still happening to our communities? It begs belief sometimes, you know, when there's so much evidence out there that our current policies don't work. And even if you look internationally, there's a move away from prohibitionist policies. You'd ask why our ones are still in place. Ultimately, I don't know, but my suspicion is, is that they work for the people who are enforcing the laws. We need to keep the judiciary going. You need people in prison and you need people in psychiatry and you need people, they, you need raw material. And raw material is people. So in order to keep that system going, you need those types of laws. So on that hand, I don't I see people not wanting it to change on that basis. And then those who are taking advantage of the illegality of it certainly don't want it to change because it's, uh, it's you know, there's extreme profits to be made, you know, untaxed. It's a get-rich-quick scheme, kind of. When you see those whose role it is to enforce prohibition and those take advantage of it, you know, the rest of us are left kind of pondering the consequences. What would you like to see happen? What would you like to see the Citizens' Assembly recommend? And what would you like to see happen right now that could actually change people's lives, that could stop this happening? There's no silver bullet to this. I think drug use itself is always going to be something that will have to be managed. But I think we can manage it in a much less harmful and damaging way than we currently are. And that will require a radical shift in our attitudes and our thinking and a radical shift in our policies. So my own position is, is that we actually need to look beyond decriminalisation and we need to go as far as regulating all drugs. And what that looks like is accepting that drug use is normal adult behaviour. And so what, oh, what about the children? I'm saying, well, let's focus on delaying the onset of teenagers' drugs or children's drug and alcohol use. But if we're a bit more sensible in saying, this is a normal part of life where people will eventually experiment. Within that delay and the onset, we can educate young people and we do that by, by massively resourcing early childhood education and you, you work to do that work. So when they become adults, they can make informed choices about what they're putting into their body. And yes, other people will be using drugs, yeah, but we're just acknowledging that that is already happening that those floodgates opened up a long time ago legalization will not introduce new drugs to people they're already available people would be worried about unintended consequences but we'd have to look at the consequences of prohibition as well and they're they're, they're just far widely damaging that we do need a new approach and we have to be brave and start to regulate some of these drugs and do it in a way that's best for everybody but also in a way that is done carefully in terms of what age do you put this at, where do you get this. It's to reduce you know, the black market and then to reduce, to get it out of the hands of young people because not, young people are not only using drugs, they're, they're the suppliers of them now, such as the situation that's got so bad. So that's what it looks like to me is regulation and what would be the role then, say, of law enforcement? Well, it makes far more sense to criminalise anybody who operates outside of legal framework. Mm. But it would make far more sense because if we're acknowledging that people want to use drugs just like they are alcohol, cigarettes, coffee, oh, they're not drugs. Yes, they are. They're just legal. And therefore, you're taking a moral standpoint. Because it's illegal, it's bad, and illegal, it's not. It's like, come on, they're drugs. If people develop addictions, we treat it with compassion and care. Prison's not the answer to treat an addiction. We know this, the evidence is there. And you on the ground, you know, working with young people and I'm sure some young people who then, and young adults who need actual treatment, need support, the services aren't there. No, no, they're not there. 
especially for young people, there's not a lot because, again, I think it's inhibited. It makes us hard to provide those services because we're operating under the paradigm of prohibition. You know, it obfuscates our ability to be able to do the work that we're supposed to do. Like the amount of treatment beds that there are in this country, but there's never le- everlasting beds in prison. We know this isn't the, the way to go, but we're still doing it. Decriminalisation is amazing for the drug user, but it doesn't really do anything to tackle violent criminal gangs who are exploiting young people out there. So if you decriminalise, you still have to buy our drugs off gangs. So that's why I would say like decriminalisation as an important first step but there needs to be an overall move towards ending prohibition and, you know, a roadmap or, you know, an end in sight that we will phase this in, not recklessly, but carefully. That's what I'd advocate for, but done in the interests of the community and not be capital like corporations and stuff like that. So how would it work in Ireland? So look at what they've done around the world. Decriminalisation is in, in many countries in some shape or form full or, you know, partially. And cannabis has been legalised in some of the most modern societies in the world, like Canada and the US and stuff like that, and Germany's on hand to do it. And like, say, in Ireland, like, when I'm saying we can't just, like, legalise cannabis, we need to do that carefully and say, what does it mean for Ireland? And look at what Germany's doing, for example, sensibly, is allowing the right to grow up the tree plants. And that damages commercialisation, but it also damages the black market. There's loads of different ways for different types of drugs that they can actually be regulated. And who's best to inform that? Who's best, if, if Ireland starts to move towards that, like who's best to inform how that should be done? People people like myself and other activists are people with knowledge and a genuine interest in it. It's because my own experience of engaging, say, politicians wouldn't have that strong knowledge base, bar a few who have been absolute champions with this stuff, but... A lot of them like will be very political with it, and, and some even now it's politically expedient to be appear to be tough on crime to get votes, but not really do anything about it then once they've got in. So political football plays a role within that. So we need to put pressure on politicians and support the ones who are advocating for those reforms. And and you know it's a good opportunity now with the assembly for the country to really look at this crisis that we actually have and I hope and the outcome of it is that we're going to start looking in a new direction and that it won't be in vain and that we look back and we've done that. So are we going to accept that we do another 50 years of this and contend with the wreckage and destruction because it's not a problem in big cities anymore and now the worst of it is happening in the areas I work but drugs is in every area and it's a, it's a problem for every class now. It's only a matter of time before it's not just an issue of containment. It's a problem for everyone. Can I ask, you mentioned it is the communities you work in and it is communities like ours. So what needs to happen separately to that to address the underlying reasons as well that our communities get so affected and, and experience such increased harms? What needs to be done for our communities? Well, I think, you know, bringing an end to prohibition and recognising that we need to coexist with drugs in a much less harmful way that they are because they're not going anywhere. There's always going to be a demand. Then we're in a position to really address kind of real causes of poverty. Like I say, prohibition doesn't cause poverty. Prohibition just traps people there, contains them there. So 
I do think when you stop needlessly criminalising large swathes of working class population, you improve their outcomes overnight and then we can contend with the real issues that are happening in communities, which is major uninvestment over decades and generations. What we're talking about here is, is a man-made policy which say, oh, there was lots of unintended consequences. If they're kept in place still as they are, knowing that we've all the evidence to say, suggest it's not, it is intended. And that's what people need to be educated and become aware of because our communities are unsafe and our children in Ireland today, especially in Dublin, growing up as a parent, you'd have to be worried when they hit a certain age, what, what awaits for them. Do you know that no one wants to see that happen in their children? Thanks so much for sharing all of that with us. So, your personal experience, your professional experience, your activism. Just one last question I have for you, and it's to leave people listening who maybe don't know a lot of this or haven't experienced it. What can people do? What can people at home do to actually contribute to this change? Talk about it. Um, have conversations about what would regulation mean. Firstly, ask yourself, is it working? And when you're, if you say, oh, no, it's not, well, then what would your solution actually be? had that seriously impacted my life and my development but I channel all that trauma you know pain and suffering into this because I genuinely believe that it can actually change because it's a policy related problem at the end of the day it's not a people problem it's a policy one and all the evidence points back to a policy that if historically if you go back to the origins of them you will find out that their, their intent wasn't to keep people safe and protected from harms of drugs. The prohibition is an oppressive tool of control to keep certain groups in their place and it works very well in any country that it's in place. I'm not afraid to say that. That's why it's still in place, you know, but there's a global shift away from it now. So, you know, I'm motivated to do something about if someone's inspired by what I'm saying, you can do it too. Like I'm currently, obviously I've been an advocate for the last 10 years, but I'm still campaigning and have a campaign with other youth workers calling for regulation. So we're looking forward to the Citizens' Assembly to get our views across and our message across and hopefully the citizens um, will look at the evidence and our argument, which is quite a persuasive and compelling argument, it's hard to argue against because most people that read it go, yeah. So it's important we're taking the stand we are in the way that we are. I mean, I'm delighted that more youth workers have come into the conversation, but there's a commitment and a determination, a willingness to play the long game with this, because this has been in place for a very long time, and it's going to take due process for it to be undone. But any great change that has ever come in the world has come from the ground up, not the top down, and we, we need to demand change because it's really negatively affecting our society and making our children and young people and communities unsafe. And can I ask you about activism as well then? Do you get a sense of hope in activism when you see so many other incredible people that you campaign and with and that you see working towards the, the same goal? Does that give you a sense of energy and a sense of hope? Oh, 100%. I mean, you find your tribe within that and you learn about their stories, these similar kind of motivations. It's not just one of paid professional activists. These are people who their interests are in their work, but outside of work as well. And I know we'd all be doing it regardless of whether we, we, we were doing it from our jobs. The issue with drugs can be a poison chalice, but someone has to hold it. And we need to change the narrative out there. And I'm just playing my part. And we'll continue until we see change. 
because we need change to this issue. It's been going on for a very long time and it's not produced remotely the outcomes it was intended to do. So it's time to do start doing something differently and we're ready to see what that's like by changing. Well, I think conversations and people power and the fact that communities coming together can influence change. And most of all, thank you for sharing your story with us today. I'm sure I speak for everybody listening to say that it's been really impactful. And thanks to everybody listening at home. This has been an episode of Untold Stories, an Alfonso film production on behalf of Citywide Drugs Crisis Campaign, hosted and produced by me, Claire O'Connor, working with Anna Quigley of Citywide, graphic design by Ben Clancy, sound editing by Kieran O'Connor. We want to have these conversations out in the open where they should be had. We want to work towards ending shame, blame, stigma and criminalisation. And we really believe that these conversations are a part of that. So if you haven't, please go and listen to the other four episodes in this series. Share the podcast, talk to your friends, have these conversations and thanks for listening.